0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Raw Talk Live COVID Decoded series. This year, we are making the most of the new normal and bringing you a virtual discussion series all about the COVID-19 pandemic. Over eight weeks this summer, we live-streamed our discussions with experts on COVID-19 and its impact on science and our society. My name is Nathan, and I'm the host of this fourth installment of COVID Decoded. Joining me are Dr. Jeff Kwong, an epidemiologist, specialist in public health and preventive medicine and family physician as well as Professor Vivek Goel, a member of the COVID-19 Immunity Task Force and the Governing Council for CanCOVID. He's also a professor in the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the Dalhousie School of Public Health. We'll discuss the public health response to COVID-19 in Canada and Ontario. Before we jump into the discussion, we wish to acknowledge this land on which the University of Toronto and our podcast operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Let's roll! Can you talk about how public health agencies in Canada and Ontario are presently handling COVID? What have they kind of been doing about COVID to date?
1: Well, they've been very, very busy. Let's just start by saying that. Um, At the provincial level, first and foremost, they've been ramping up the lab testing capacity so that we can uh, identify um, all the cases of COVID who are out there in the community. Uh, At the local level, uh, they've been very busy with what we call case management and contact tracing. Uh, And so ensuring and also ensuring isolation of those cases, uh, the contacts, um, you know, and the cases uh, who've been identified. And at all levels, uh, local, provincial, and federal, uh, they've been busy, like, doing, like, surveillance uh, and mathematical modelling to track where the outbreaks are happening and what interventions are required. Uh, They've also been doing, um, you know, research studies and knowledge synthesis uh, to provide guidance and recommendations, uh, you know, to government, healthcare system uh, partners, uh, the public and other stakeholders. So all of these things have led to where we are now, you know, where we have, you know, this, with the current lockdown that we're trying to get out of, you know, shutting down the schools and businesses, uh, cancelling a large events, and, and keeping our international borders closed.
0: So so clear, it's clear that public health is doing a lot of different things right now. We're doing you're doing testing, you're looking at epidemiology, you're doing the modeling for all these local areas, a lot of different kind of facets. And on top of all this, of course, the public health recommendations themselves, as you're alluding to, you know, the mass policies, et cetera. Um, okay, so we kind of have a sense that you know, public health has been doing a lot of this work, but Dr. Goel Vivek, um, can you talk about what aspects of our current response Motivated you and your co-signers to write the letter advocating for change in a, in the way that we're managing COVID.
2: So, first of all, I, w- I just want to echo uh, Jeff's points about how hard public health and our entire healthcare system and broader society. And I think really acknowledge the tremendous sacrifice the Canadians have made, right, over the last four months. Um, and if you think of the number of people that are unemployed as a result of what we've done. Everyone has worked really hard, and all Canadians have made a contribution to this. I also want to say our response to date is actually really good, despite what we might read about in the media and so on. If you think of our early response in January and February, um, Canada uh, was a model globally for how to deal with a new virus uh, like this. And the early cases were quickly identified. Uh, contact tracing, as Jeff noted, was done. And we were able to work towards what should have been the appropriate uh, way of handling something like this, a containment strategy globally. Um, you know, our pandemic plans, and I was involved in uh, working on a number of plans, as has Jeff has been over the years, uh, never anticipated failure south of the border. Really? They never anticipated the CDC not being able to roll out the testing program for the United States they never anticipated EU countries like Europe, Italy and Spain failing at containment. Mm-hmm. And, and the situation that we wound up in at the beginning of March was not the result of what happened in China. It was not the result of what happened in Canada in those early months or any failures on the part of Canadian public health or provincial or local public health. It was the result of what happened in EU countries, and the United States south of the border. And, you know, I think we have to keep that in mind when we think about the situation that we're in, and I'll come back to this, and how we compare it to some other countries in the world. And, and so I, I just want to start by saying the letter was not meant to be critical of public health. It was signed by many uh, current and former leaders in public health. And all of the public health colleagues that have certainly responded to me have noted they agree with everything that's in that letter, right? And so I think it's important to understand the target for our letter was our political decision makers, the media, and the public. Yes. Because what we see that the conversation that we're now having about COVID-19 has become one of uh, almost complete focus on COVID-19, preventing every case, um, containing every case, and it's going, it's starting to come at the detriment of the broader determinants of health. And I know we'll get into this a little bit later. When we talk about a balanced response, it's about balancing the consequences of the public health measures, which have now gone on for some time. Um, again, in the pandemic plans, they're never anticipated to be long-term measures that you keep in place until you develop a vaccine as your way out. Um, And again, we can talk about how long it will realistically take to get to a vaccine and get it deployed. Uh, But if we're going to stay in sort of the current mode, even what we're talking about as phase three reopening, it is going to mean that we will have severe population health consequences as a result of those measures while we try to continue to limit the number of COVID cases. So when we talk about balance, it's looking at a balancing of all those health consequences. Mm -hmm. I'll just maybe close. You know, many people have framed this as economy versus health, and I certainly think that's a way to think about it. But the writers of that letter are not coming at this from an economy versus health perspective. We're purely coming at it from a population health and equity perspective.
0: Absolutely. I want to actually dig into this just a little bit more. So would it be fair to say that this letter would not have been published then? had Europe and the U.S. and other Western countries essentially successfully mounted a containment response, like Canada?
2: Uh, so let me, I, I, don't, I can't say if the letter would have been published or not, but if, if we hadn't had, uh, in particular, the failures of control in, in New York City, um, if you look, uh, and Jeff is probably more familiar with this, but if you look at the viral strains that are circulating and so on, the dominant strains now, in In Canada, for some time, have been the European strains, not the original ch- strains that came out of China. Um, and And so if we had, you know if we had stayed on track with the original pandemic plans, I don't think we would have had the widespread uh, community uh, transmission that we've seen. and And that's uh, what came into Canada from uh, Europe into Quebec, uh, returning travels from Europe after the spring break there. And into the Toronto region, Ontario, probably people coming in from New York, from Florida, um, as, as the travelers returned. We had a few imported cases from Iran into BC. Like, you, you look at where it came in, it was a result of that. And it, it, you know, I think it's fair to say people were perhaps caught off guard on how fast it moved through those jurisdictions. And we got to community uh, transmission. Very quickly in Canada. As as a result, it also speaks to um, you know the, if you go back to February and March, when everyone was calling for closures of the border with China, I had an op-ed which pointed out, as many other people did, that closing borders is not a appropriate uh, response mechanism, and we could have closed our borders with China, It would, still would not have stopped where the virus ultimately came into Canada from.
0: So that's really interesting. Basically, it looks like kind of our the way that we we're going to talk about the future at the end of this discussion. But you know, looking forward, it looks like our response to COVID is directly shaped then by the way that others kind of have responded to COVID. And so that the fact that you're advocating for a change in the, our response is not a criticism of our public health uh, response, but rather uh, identifying that our public health response is not independent of Others, other other uh, responses in other jurisdictions, and we must accommodate for them. Especially, you know, if, given that the U.S. is literally our largest neighbor and biggest neighbor, and ten times our population, it kind of is a different situation there than here.
2: Yeah, and if I could just make one other point, and yeah, you know, I think Jeff might want to add on this as well, is you know we often have comparisons made with Iceland and, and New Zealand, and you know there are countries that have achieved close to containment. Uh, and managed to get their community transmission right down very close to zero. Um, They tend to be smaller. They didn't have, I think, ever the level of community transmission that we got to back in uh, March and early April. Um, And they don't have the United States sitting next to them. And, um, you know, and we can talk about the border being closed. Uh, You know, it's closed to non-essential travel, but we can't close the border with the United States. We would starve to death, quite literally. Mm -hmm right? And, and so we are in a very different situation than the other countries that often get held up as examples. And and so again, when we think about what our response is and what the appropriate response is, absolutely right. The virus does not respect the border, right?
0: Absolutely, And
2: it's going to come in regardless. And especially when we have this longest undefended border um, to the south of us with a country that is failing um, in its response, it's it does change the situation for us. Absolutely.
0: I want to touch on something that you kind of mentioned or alluded to earlier too, which was essentially that the public health response to COVID-19 needs to be balanced and balanced against some of the more negative effects, especially that uh, of the measures themselves directly or, uh, and COVID itself directly. And so to that end, one of, I'm quoting here from your letter now, the, the consequences of the public health measures due to COVID-19, have not been shared equally in society. Those in lower income groups, black, and other racialized groups, recent immigrants, and indigenous people are bearing disproportionate burden. So Dr. Kwong, I know that some of your research at ICES echoed at some of these findings earlier on, way back in late April, early May. You are saying how uh, Patients or individuals who got tested for COVID-19 had a tendency to come from lower income neighborhoods or neighborhoods with more immigrants and visible minorities. Can you, I guess, talk about how COVID-19 has been, what this disproportionate impact of COVID-19 actually looks like towards marginalized populations?
1: Yeah, I think it boils down to uh, two factors. I think it boils down to workplaces and housing. You know, think of where, where do we spend most of our time, either at work or at home? And so I think it's not as much about, you know, visible minority groups and immigrants as much as um, who, um, where um, people are working and where people are living, and that these workplaces may be unsafe for them. So if you're able to work from home, then that's, you know, a much safer environment. Um, But if you have to go out to work um, and you're potentially exposed to the virus, so a lot of the people who had to continue working through uh, through this pandemic, um, you know, were at risk of exposure. And a lot of these people were visible minorities and uh, immigrants, um, you know, they're at jobs such as like personal support workers and, and nursing homes, or they work in, you know, um, you know food processing uh, facilities. Um, so these are just, just like, some examples where they may be working in close contact with others. They either don't have access to personal protective equipment or they don't have training uh, on how to use it. Um, and then they're going home where there may be a crowded living condition. So there may be um, many people living in an apartment or in a house, you know, multi-generational families. Um, where it would be hard to maintain physical distancing with others. And so then they introduce the virus uh, into their household and then it spreads to the household. And maybe one of the other people in that household also has to go to work. And then they bring it to their uh, workplace and then so on and so forth. That's just how... Uh, you know, we see we were seeing it spread um, in, in March and April uh, and May, mm-hmm. and hopefully, you know, now a lot of the workplaces have instituted a lot of measures to protect their employees, um, and hopefully, we can also um, have more measures to protect people, uh, you know, who live in crowded housing. Um, so there has been talk about, you know, allowing uh, people who live in crowded housing to have, uh, you know, to stay in alternative uh, places like hotels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that they can properly self-isolate. So I, I know that there are, has been talk at both the local and provincial levels of having um, programs like this in place to help people, to support people uh, to self-isolate.
0: So I guess kind of what I'm getting from this then is it's two things. One, the the feasibility of your ability to do, to comply essentially with a social or public health measure seems to be uh, one of the most important factors to whether or not you will, you're, uh, you'll, End up getting COVID or be be impacted by COVID. Feasibility is a key component. The other half of this kind of sounds like a lot of these issues were present even before COVID kind of came about. You know, it's not as though racialized or marginalized marginalized communities suddenly decided to uh, live together, having heard about COVID nineteen. That seems kind of absurd, right? So it's you know the, it looks like the the existing situation has contributed a lot then to how COVID has impacted uh, marginalized populations.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, the other factor is like, you know, maybe they have trouble um, because of language barriers or unfamiliar with the health system. They may not be aware of how to access testing um, or maybe uh, being able to advocate for themselves to get tested uh, and to access other health services. So all of these things may be playing out. Um, you know, they're all, these, you know, these, social determinants of health kind of are converging. You know, it could be lack of education, um, you know, and then, you know, they have a low-paying employment, and then they're working in unsafe conditions uh, and not able to advocate for themselves. And all of these things are coming together.
0: All right, yeah. Well, it sounds like, obviously, then, the the impact of COVID on marginalized populations is, it's not not straightforward as simply, you know, marginalized populations were always more susceptible. It's that there's all these additional factors that contribute to the living, the, to the lives and lived experiences of marginalized populations. And then when you kind of play that out, that is ultimately how COVID is, or that's how COVID's impact is manifesting. And I, I, I really like that. I am, what I'm gonna say is why we'll come back to this idea of marginalized populations uh, towards the end of our discussion and what we can kind of do about this, uh, do about this in terms of public health and COVID. Uh, but As we're kind of, uh, before we kind of switch over to uh, the next section, uh, heads up to our audience that if you have a question about what you want to see with respect to changes moving forward with the public health response or how we might address some of these issues or questions even about what's already happened with the public health response, uh, please go right ahead and drop us a question online on YouTube uh, for our live Q&A at the end of the hour. So... Can
2: I just, uh, sorry, can I just add in a point on this so you know I agree with all the points that Jeff has made and first of all just um, there's been a lot of um, speculation about you use the word susceptibility that you know are some of these populations somehow more susceptible there may be some uh, uh, genetic factors there's lots of research to be done on that there may be some basis for some of the pre-existing conditions that lead to higher risk in certain populations. But I really want to emphasize Jeff's point, this is actually not about biological possibility, uh, uh, predisposition in some of these populations. It is the nature of the social determinants of health, yes. which, as you said, we've known about for a long time, and COVID really makes transparent. But I do also, because you read out the quote, you know, we were talking about the consequences of the public health measures as well as... consequences of COVID-19 and when you think about uh, and Jeff said this at the start the people that could take the public health measures work from home are people like the ones likely on this call Um, you know and we've got the technology the our jobs allow us to continue to do even family physicians were able to move to virtual care which is like 30 years of progress in (laughs) in a month yeah but uh, but you know the people that Jeff described Mm -hmm if you're working in a grocery store or as a personal support worker in long-term care, your work, you can't take those public health measures. You, you have to continue to work, and that enables the rest of us to keep working. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we think about the places that have been affected as the economy got shut down, um, again, the uh, you know, if you're able to work from home, continue to make your income. If you're not able to work from home, you eventually got laid off. Mm-hmm. And it, Canada has been exemplary in the programs it created, like the CERB, Mm -hmm. that provided support for uh, those people. Uh, But as we come back, if we look at what's going to happen in the restaurant and the retail industry, there's been a wave of closures already of stores Mm -hmm. uh, being announced. Um, And restaurants, uh, you know, right now they've got patios. They're going to operate on probably 30% or less capacity with two-meter separation going forward. The people that will lose their jobs will wind up being the very same people that Jeff described. Mm -hmm. Because those are the people working in the service sectors, the hotel and tourism industry with borders closed, um, you know, globally accounts for about 10% of the jobs worldwide are related to travel and tourism. Mm -hmm. So as long as those sectors, say, shut down, there are also going to be consequences from the public health measures and again, in writing that letter and thinking about balanced response, what we're saying is we have to also think about those consequences.
0: Sounds like often, I guess, in public health, you're, you're caught in a catch-22. You you do one thing and it'll kind of make one one problem better, but it'll raise it'll raise the specter of the second problem right after. Uh, so it's a hard job, and I can imagine that. Uh, and... With that said, I think what we'll do is we're going to quickly move over to our next section on public health interventions uh, before we kind of come back to this topic again, just to uh, more bef- when we will more in-depth discuss the future of Canada and Ontario's public health response. So with that said, um, public health interventions, these are a huge range of all of the different measures that public health agencies introduce to kind of combat uh, diseases and other issues within the population. And I want to focus on a particular uh, intervention implemented due to COVID. That is to say, mandatory mask usage. So this policy, uh, the idea that you have to wear a a mask mandatorily indoors, uh, was introduced in Toronto, I believe, last week. And these types of policies are showing up all over the place in uh, in jurisdictions in Canada and the U.S. and uh, more broadly in Europe and elsewhere. They are also very much present earlier on in Asia as well. I'm kind of wondering, kind of, uh, Dr. Kwong, if you can take us through some of the guidance on mask usage. How has that kind of changed in time? Because I know that one point, you know, we were not all saying let's wear masks. And what has motivated this change now towards mandatory mask policies?
1: Yeah, I mean, at the start, you know, we were telling people, you know, only only, only if you're sick, do you need to wear a mask mm-hmm. or if you're caring for someone yeah. uh, who's sick, do you need to wear a mask? And um, and that was when we thought, oh, you know, you only are, um, you know, contagious or infectious when you have symptoms. And then we started realizing that people um, may be infectious uh, before they have symptoms. And then there's some people who may have no symptoms who could be infectious mm-hmm. as well. And when we realized that, and we also just, you know, observationally, like anecdotally, we saw in other countries where you know, they had a lot of mask wearing and they seemed to be able to get control of the infection. Then we started realizing that maybe we should be uh, encouraging greater use of masks. Mm-hmm. Then there was the issue of, like, you know, are there enough masks for people to use? And, you know, there was already a short supply of, of the, you know, N95 respirators as well as the surgical masks the, for the healthcare system and for our healthcare workers. Um, so we didn't want the public um, buying up all the supply of these masks. And so, you know, that was another factor that went into the decision not to recommend masks early on and then later on we, we realized that um you know cloth masks or you know homemade masks might, might do enough uh, for what we call source control so people who may be unknowingly infected mm-hmm. um you know they uh, if they wear a mask a non-medical mask that's good enough to capture the droplets um, that are coming out of their mouths when they breathe and talk uh, and that can you know do the trick of preventing uh you know spread of that infection uh, from that one person to others mm-hmm. and so the idea that you know we need as many people as possible to wear masks for this strategy to work um you know y- you know there may be some protection for the person wearing the mask from others but mainly it's source control mm-hmm. um and so you know we are also learning that you know a lot of the transmissions happening indoors when there's like poor circulation uh, you know that virus may actually be hanging around in the air um and 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 that sort of thing so you know, outdoors, we weren't seeing as much transmission. We think that the air currents are, are blowing the virus away. Um, and indoors, where there's good uh, air circulation, we weren't seeing a lot of uh, transmission. So that's why, that's how we came to where we are now, where we're saying, you know, if you're going to an indoor setting, um, then it's mandatory uh, to wear a mask because we just don't know uh, who's infected, who's not infected. You know, you may be pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, and you could be shedding virus. You could be spreading to others. Uh, you know, through your talking and breathing. Um, so that's why, um, you know, we're at where we're at, where we're saying, you know, it's mandatory in Toronto and in a number of other jurisdictions. Quebec just require, um, made it made an announcement recently that's saying that it's required, you know, throughout the province for indoor places, uh, spaces you have to wear a mask. So, and I think this is, um, you know, a good thing. I think uh, it's good that we have, uh, you know, a, a, I think there's a lot of... Th- like I think our society um, thinks very collectively and there hasn't been as much resistance uh, to this uh, recommendation and in, in some places requirements as, as there has been in the U.S. Um, and I think this is going to, you know, um, help to protect all of us.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I know that mask policy was also something that Dr. Goel uh, Vivek, the letter also addressed to you. And I think in, in the letter, it's talking a little bit about how we want to make sure that masks are log- or any mask policy is logically linked to the goal that it's trying to achieve. So I guess, uh, Vivek, if you can talk about some of uh, the goals of mask policies, what is the actual, what are, are they actually intended to kind of limit this transmission is, or is this what it'll do? Yeah, so I think, uh, and to just
2: build on Jeff's point, uh, and again, I agree with everything he said, is that um, we have to be able to communicate clearly to the public what the purpose of wearing the masks is, and the distinction between personal protection, which is important for healthcare workers or grocery store workers who are getting exposed, potentially exposed to people who may be uh, either infectious, symptomatic and infectious, or asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic and infectious, versus the source control to delay community or uh, stop uh, uh, community transmission. And you know, I think there's a lot of confusion in the public about what the purposes are at, at times as well. Um, and you know, I, I think in terms of the mandatory pass, mass policies that are being introduced, I would add in, you know, they are really being focused on uh, public places with high circulation where there's large amounts of mixing. Um, so retail, um, and uh, those sites, uh, public lobbies and so on. Um, and it's about where contact tracing after the fact, Where and we're going to come back uh, next, is, diff- is more difficult, right? So if you have people mixing in a shopping centre, it's an indoor space, physical distancing at two metres becomes more and more challenging and you can't keep track of everyone. Adding in uh, masks in an environment like that um, does appear to make a, a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, you know, uh, a lot of people are interpreting this as it's masks for all indoor spaces. Mm-hmm. If I'm sitting alone at my desk in my office, I don't need to wear a mask, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and so, again, that's where in our letter we're saying we really have to be clear around the risk profile in different environments and different settings, and otherwise people are getting confused about where they should... Be. I see people riding their bike down the street... With nobody around them wearing a mask, and you say, what, what, "What's the purpose of that?" And you know, they 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 haven't had clear communications and clear messaging, and so as a result, they're wearing masks probably in environments that they don't uh,
0: need to be wearing masks. So I guess to summarize that, you're wearing a mask to prevent yourself from potentially spreading the disease to other people. Yeah, and-,
2: and 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 I think you know the distinction is really important because. Um, we talked about in the in the previous one, like making sure that uh, people working in higher risk mm-hmm. of infection environments have the appropriate protection. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, depending on what the level of community transmission is, uh, a worker in a retail outlet should actually be getting masks for protection. Mm-hmm. And in that case, uh, Jeff, uh, I would be saying that that person should have a medical grade mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a cloth mask because, as you said, it's it's not as good at, at protection. But we're seeing lots of people in those settings wearing cloth masks because of the confusion that's out there versus the customer in the retail setting who's just going in for a few minutes should be wearing a cloth mask um, to avoid that uh, asymptomatic uh, transmission to others. But because of all the confusion, so that's what we were really saying in the letter. We have to just be more clear and crisp mm-hmm. And it has to be geared to the level of community transmission mm-hmm. in a particular jurisdiction. So
0: that's really interesting, yeah. I'm not sure if that message is entirely clear yet, that, you know, if you are working in a very public-facing job, constantly interacting with people, yes, to consider getting that medical mask. If you are not, then maybe consider then cloth masks.
2: Uh, I'll just rephrase what you just said, because in that setting, if there is higher levels of community transmission and that worker is at risk... Yes the employer has an obligation mm. to provide appropriate personal protective equipment for that employee. It's not just up to that. And so again, it's not up to that employee to figure out, mm-hmm. should I be wearing a cloth mask or a surgical mask? Yes. But, you know, uh, to be honest, I don't think we're really giving clear guidance to all those employers. If you're running a, uh, a little mm-hmm. restaurant with three employees, how do you figure out all the guidance that's coming exactly, out? Exactly.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm reminded of like AODA compliance, ex- accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act and the compliance for that is really dependent on you know how many people are in your organization and so they have different rules if you have at least 50 people in your organization and I imagine that's probably for good reason Uh, but yeah you know especially when you're working with employers who are potentially employing less than 10 people you know trying to find out some of this information for themselves might be is challenging if it's not clear. So I'm glad that we do have actually a, a clearer response here that it is actually your employer's job to determine whether or not you're wearing a medical mask or a surgical mask, and that determination is generally based on a risk assessment uh, that considers you know, community transmission and how public-facing that job is. So, okay, I like that a lot. I guess uh, on a similar note, I wanna ask uh, how we can connect the idea of compliance behind a public health intervention and the effectiveness of that policy itself. So, for example, like mandatory mask policies, where the intention here is to kind of uh, limit the l- likelihood of an asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic individual from transmitting COVID. Uh, to what extent is that goal affected by the likelihood of everybody, compli- lim- like 99% compliance with a mask policy versus, you know, like 50% compliance or 10% compliance? Do we, do we consider kind of pushing these policies still if, they are, if we are not... Uh, if we don't reasonably expect compliance to be very high, you know, is this kind of like a, waste, a wasted effort, so to speak? Um, I wonder if you can kind of speak to that. Um, Jeff.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll go first. I mean, you know, no intervention is, are you going to achieve like 100% compliance, right? And so, you know, you you're, know, if you're, I think you're happy if you get like 90-something percent, obviously. But, um, you know, I think the models are showing that, you know, even if we have, um, you know, lower than that, we can still have a lot of benefit. So I think the idea, the message is that we you know we need as many people to do this as possible. Um, and you know this you know this could really help to you know dramatically reduce transmission. But you know if there are some people who are not able to do it, um, I think it's similar to vaccines, right? Like there are some people who can't get vaccines for whatever reason. Um, you know, they'll be protected by if everyone else uh, is getting vaccinated and here, you know, if everyone else is masking, um, you know, so it's a of a, we, I think we need to frame it as a civic duty. You know, I'm wearing a mask to help protect everyone else around me um, as much as possible. And if we all do it, then we're all, you know, this is how we're all in it
0: together. And there seems to be a bit of a, a herd immunity analogy here, right? In terms of just if everybody's doing it, then, you know, it's far less likely that any one individual is going to get infected.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I'll just add in, um, I mean, it,
2: first of all, we don't want to get into a enforcement environment mm-hmm. where we have mask police running around issuing uh, tickets to people for not wearing a mask. And and first of all, they're, going back to our earlier conversation, there was a very interesting report from the Kane Civil Liberties uh, mm-hmm. Association a few weeks ago about who got all the bylaw tickets on physical distancing in April and May, and it tended to be the same communities that we were just talking about, yes, right? Yeah. Um, and so... You know, if we start to get into mass policing, I it's going to be just like carding and other things. Mm-hmm. Police are going to be stopping people, and it's going to be very arbitrary. So, And I don't think that's a society that we want to be working towards. So it's just we should be encouraging a community sense uh, that everyone is in it together. But the other thing that I think is really important is masks are an additional layer. Mm-hmm. If we can get to 70 percent or so on, it's going to help in the models. Reducing community transmission a little bit further, we have to keep reminding people that the most important things: staying home if you're symptomatic, continuing to practice frequent hand hygiene. You know, those are the things that actually have the greatest impact. And then we're getting smaller and smaller marginal benefit with some of these other things. Uh, but when you get to really high levels of community transmission, those marginal benefits become quite powerful.
0: That's really interesting. Uh, I'm going to switch gears quickly now. Uh, We're going to talk about contact tracing. So I know that contact tracing was probably one of the earliest things that we kind of introduced to deal with COVID. What exactly is that process, Dr. Kwong?
1: Yeah, so I mean, this is, you know, one of the basic tools of public health. Um, So in the context of COVID, what happens is, you know, first of all, a lab has to notify local public health that they've identified a case. Uh, then the health unit in Ontario, the public health units, are the ones responsible for what we call case management and then contact tracing. So what they first do is they call the case, and then they advise them that they need to self-isolate, uh, you know, for a period of, you know, 14 days, um, you know, since their symptom onset. Um, then they, you know, they interview the case to identify who who they've been in contact with, uh, for starting from the 48 hours prior to symptom onset until the start of their isolation period. Uh, so once they've assembled that list of contacts, they then have to contact all those people um, and let them know that they've been exposed to a case of COVID. Now they'll tell them to go get tested for COVID, uh, and that they have to go into quarantine, um, you know, for 14 days from the date of their last exposure um, and, to, and then to monitor for symptoms at that time. So that's the process of contact tracing. They do have the, uh, public health has the legal authority Uh, to, you know, to um, mandate people um, to stay um, at home and, uh, you know, isolate themselves or quarantine themselves uh, for that period.
0: That's great. Um, And I guess uh, kind of before we move on a little bit more, uh, Dr. Guell, if you want to talk a little bit about covid alert. This is the app that I think Ontario was developing and was supposed to be released earlier this month. We're not sure kind of sure we're kind of where that is now. Uh, but I wonder if you can talk about COVID alert.
2: Yeah, so maybe I'll just say a couple of words about uh, the different kinds of uh, apps that have been uh, developed around the world and, and where COVID alert fits in. So the simplest use of a, sort of a phone app uh, to support contact tracing is to uh, essentially help use it as a diary. Uh, and so as Jeff described, if you uh, get a positive uh, uh, result, you get contacted by the contact tracer. You can use your phone's location history to provide where you've been to that contact tracer, and it can help them in facilitating the recall. You know, and you, you just have to have location history in Google or mm-hmm. uh, whatever uh, location apps you're using turned on, um, and there, there are apps that make that easier. You know, you press a button and it text all that information to the contact tracer who can uh, then take that on the second type of app uses gps technology and which actually tracks where you've been and um, pulls that in so that um, if you can match up where people have been using their location histories those types of apps uh, create a lot of privacy issues particularly in our kind of environment but they have been deployed in, in um, some other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the COVID Alert app uh, that is being developed for Canada, and Ontario will be the first uh, pilot uh, um, province to implement it, is based on this uh, uh, Google Apple API that they launched uh, a few months ago. It's a, a unique example of these two giants sort of working together, and it's based on Bluetooth technology. Mm-hmm. And so when you come, near another user of an app um, and it doesn't have to be uh, whether it's an ios or android device um, the bluetooth will uh, uh, engage in a handshake it can be tuned uh, to the amount of time that you're in contact so it could be five or 15 minutes so you don't just get sort of random uh, contacts being recorded Um, a pair of encrypted keys get uploaded to a server there's no location history there's no Uh, time history other than uh, keeping track of the day on which it came in. So then if one of those individuals is later confirmed as having a diagnosis, when they get in the contact tracer from public health gets in touch with them, um, they can be provided with a special key that they go into the system. And uh, it will then result in all the people for whom those handshakes were exchanged to get. A, a notification, so they get a notification alert. All that person gets is sometime in the pr- 14 days prior to this, you came within uh, Bluetooth exchange of. Uh, I mean that's not a word, but you know that's what it means of someone who had uh, COVID-19. You won't get any further information like from that, and public health won't know anything more than that either. Um, so it is a very limited value, but it uh, ensures that the privacy, the location history of the individual is not infringed upon. Um, There's a couple of weak links in there. Um, First of all, people have to download and enable the app. Very much like our previous conversation, you have to get to a high enough level of coverage in the population. And the magic number keeps coming up as about 70%, yes. uh, because the models are also that you need to get at least 70% of the users in a country um, using the same app mm-hmm. for it to really get to some level of effectiveness. Um, and then the second weak link is that the person that gets tested positive has to go back and upload that, that key yeah. back into the system. Um, whereas with some of those other approaches, the GPS technologies and so on, you know public health has access to that information and and so out of this there's not actually that much data that will get generated that will be of any meaningful value for public health um, but i do think uh there is still uh importance in the app because i think um, just the act of downloading it um uh, when when they start to roll it out the prime minister the premiers ministers so on get people to ask them to download the app we can We can put all sorts of other public health messaging around that and so it's going to be a really good education opportunity and similarly when someone gets that exposure notification not just do it in isolation that hey you were in bluetooth contact with someone in the last 14 days Um, you know here's what you can do to keep track of your symptoms if you have symptoms here's where you should go to get tested and that can be based on uh, uh, their location and, and give them really personalized information about what they can do next. So what I see as a really great opportunity uh, with the rollout of these apps is to wrap a lot of public health education around them.
0: That's great. Yeah. So it sounds like we have we're we're almost we're on the cusp of rolling out an app that is able to deal with our privacy considerations in a controllable manner. Yet at the same time, uh, although maybe not providing public health with usable data, it does provide at least public health a tool for public education, which is fantastic. All right. Um, I'm just being mindful of time here. We're going to wrap up in about 15 minutes. Uh, With that said, let's move on to our final discussion. We'll be quick, and then we'll move on to the audience Q&A. So our final discussion here is is just going to be reviewing kind of the future of Canada and Ontario's public health response. So in particular, uh, what do our experts, Dr. Goel, Jeff, uh, what do they think about how things are going to be changing moving forward? So, with that said, I want to start first with our discussion about marginalized communities. So, within with, uh, within marginalized communities, what are the, some of the specific actions that we can take to ameliorate some of the disproportionate burden caused by COVID or the public health measures uh, the introduced because of COVID itself? Uh, Jeff, if you want to start. With- Yeah,
1: I mean, I think we've been doing a lot of them already. Um, So, for instance, you know, um, let's say for the homeless population, you know, we've been putting them up in hotels so they're not crowded uh, in shelters. Um, And so, like, measures such as that, you know, for the homeless and underhoused and maybe even for people who are living in overly crowded situations when they have to be Mm self-isolating. Um, You know, so it can be short term, you know, for the people who do have housing, it can be long term for the people who don't have housing. Um, So it's measures like that that we are doing already. And I think that's really helped to uh, control uh, the spread in a lot of our settings. I mean, I think the fact that we've, you know, got the number of cases each day, you know, coming down uh, dramatically, you know, in the last couple of months, showing that, you know, what we are doing um, has been effective. And I think we just have to continue doing those, but to continue supporting, um you know are the most vulnerable members of our communities um you know the marginalized and like you know as we start reopening workplaces these are the settings that we need to be extra Mm -hmm. careful about where you know not able to uh, maintain physical uh, distancing and um you know hopefully the masks will help to uh, mitigate that risk a a bit um but i think you know those are the, the main things and um I'm not sure, Zivak if you have other ideas of of things that we should be doing. I mean, you know, until we get a vaccine, uh, you know, I think we should, you know, we we need to continue doing these things. And hopefully we we will have a vaccine, you know, sometime within the next year or two. um, And then we can, you know, at that point have a conversation about who we should be prioritizing. Should it be, you know, some of these marginalized, uh, you know, populations? Should it be just the people at highest risk of death? Um, You know, I think these are uh, conversations that will need to happen. Vivek? Yeah, so I'll just add
2: it. So first of all, I think, um, and we need to be um, honest with the population about the vaccine. And I I, I agree with you, it's one to two years, uh, not Operation Warp Speed, and (laughs) we'll have it by December, like Donald Trump is promising. Um, And then we, as he also said, we have to be honest that it will take several more years to roll out a global campaign, because it's not just, you know, we'll have to prioritize in Canada, but we'll have to prioritize around the world. And, you know, we're going to be looking at getting at least 5 billion doses Mm -hmm. to people around the world to get to levels of herd immunity. We also don't know if a vaccine will need to, we will have to do it annually, like flu or so on. So I think we have to be honest with people about how long it's going to take Mm -hmm. and what that's going to look like. Um, And and I think we also have to be ready um, for a fall wave and, and for continued sporadic outbreaks Um, And um, we can't, uh, you know, I I think really in terms of the letter we wrote, we can't just keep saying we're going to have to go back into another lockdown if we can't manage it. We have to be ready and we know a lot more than we did back in March. Mm -hmm. We know about which kinds of communities Jeff has been going over, um, the outbreaks we're in, which kinds of work settings. Let's make sure that they're prepared so we don't have outbreaks in meatpacking plants mm-hmm. and long-term care facilities, uh, homeless shelters, agriculture workers. Like We know the settings in which we've had the outbreaks, and so we should really be focusing on that. We know the people that are most likely to get hospitalized and die, and, and so we need to make sure we have the supports for those. But we also know that there's a lot of people who are at much lower risk, and so... We have to be able to ensure that we can continue to manage to allow those people to work and go about their daily lives um, so we can generate the resources that we're going to need to keep the rest of people protected. Absolutely. And, and and so the the key things, Jeff has referred to these, we need to have testing capacity. We need to have contact tracing capacity. Um, as happened in Kingston a few weeks ago when they had the outbreak in the nail salon, as they come up get them controlled really quickly um if we don't have that capacity in place, I do worry we will have to head towards another lockdown, mm-hmm. and I don't know how we would get ourselves out of that yeah. um and you know the consequences will be very
0: yeah, so it sounds a lot like you know essentially mass testing, contact tracing, you know, almost the two basic tenements of public health by this point, ultimately, if they're not uh, at the top of their game, those who are impacted the most when these policies are not working effectively are essentially the marginalized populations. So, of course, we need to continue to support these and moving forward with them. I love that message. Uh, I'm going to switch us over to our last little bit with our live Q&A with our uh, audience. So... With that said, I'm looking here, I've got a question about the effectiveness of quarantine policies in the absence of American action. So this is interesting. So this question in front of us is, to what degree are Canadian quarantine policies affected by the US and other countries, specifically, how effective can Canadian policies if other uh, be if other countries do not have similar policies? So- the yeah.
2: Purpose of qu- quarantine is to address travelers coming into a particular jurisdiction. So as long as we have strong quarantine programs in place, it's not, it doesn't really matter um, what is happening in the other jurisdictions. Where I think that questioner does have an important point, though, is, you know, people are talking about travel bubbles being created between different jurisdictions. And so as an example, if, if Canada and, and some Caribbean islands, I know a lot of people will probably be looking forward to a winter vacation next year, um, both have low transmission and they create a bubble for people to go back and forth. But that island also opens it up, itself up to the United States and they still don't have things under control. Canadians will go there and bring it back. So um, it, it, you know the bubble will also have to have the same quarantine requirements. But, uh, but, you know, I, I think the key issue is uh, what will we have around our borders, um, and we will have to maintain those kinds of requirements with countries like the United States and Brazil, uh, where there's widespread community transmission.
1: Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Vivek, and I, I think, um, you know, I think it, it'll be critical, you know, that we um, maintain this, you know, 14-day period of quarantine for you know, incoming travelers as well as returning travelers. Um, And I think there, you know, I mean, i wonder if our current measures are adequate. Uh, Right now, it's kind of like, you know, you're told that you have to do it, but the actual enforcement, um, you know, may be limited. And, you know, maybe we're getting away with it with the numbers that we're having right now. But as there are, you know, more and more numbers, um, you, you always worry that there's just a few bad apples out there who choose not to abide by these orders. Uh, and, you know, how can we, um, you know, prevent that from happening from them, from spreading it to others? And so that's what worries me as we start to reopen our borders, perhaps to other countries or, um, you know, you know, as, as as Canadians start traveling to other places and when they come back, uh, we don't want them bringing it back and, and then infecting either the household members um, or others in the community.
0: Oh, great. And I want to ask one more question from the audience as well. Um, so this question is on the cost-effectiveness of public health policies. Uh, we often use cost-effectiveness analysis in public health, uh, and are we using this type of cost-effective analysis for COVID-19 decisions? If so, how do we quantify the costs of things like children missing school? I think what the question is trying to ask. Sorry. I think what this question is yeah. trying to ask is yeah, no, is essentially uh, no, think, what is the cost-effectiveness of COVID-19 decisions and kind of that it's alluding to the balancing that I think Vivek was talking about.
2: Yeah, and that is absolutely um, part of our message is uh, I think in some of the current decision making again, I would say it's not necessarily public health decision making, right? This is what the public is showing with their revealed preferences and surveys Mm -hmm. and what they are talking about with the politicians and as a result what we're seeing. So, yeah, the focus on Children, I think, is absolutely essential. And the Sick Kids report from a few weeks, I think, highlighted very clearly the consequences for kids on their development um, of, of a long-term shutdown. Early childhood development is the strongest predictor of their lifelong health. Yes. And and so, if we keep them out of school, if we keep them out of uh, the social interactions where they learn, um, that will affect their development over the lifelong. I don't think a cost effectiveness or a risk benefit analysis is actually being done because we have allowed ourselves to become so focused on averting every case of COVID-19. Um, and and that also enters into, I think, some of the other decisions that are being made. And that's exactly in the balance of response, we're saying we need that kind of analysis. I wouldn't actually use the term cost benefit, I would say risk benefit uh, mm-hmm. analysis. Um, cost is one of the things we could look at, but I think it's just from a health perspective you can look at the risks and benefits.
0: And Jeff?
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the tricky thing with these is that, you know, we we don't really have a counterfactual. We don't know what would have happened if we hadn't introduced these things. You know, how many more cases would we have? We can kind of only um, conjecture what it would would be like you know, we we can cite Italy, we can cite New York City, we can cite right now what's going on in Florida and elsewhere. You know, so we assume that if we had, you know, suddenly released all our lockdown measures, you know, we would have a situation like that. But so we don't know for sure that that would be the case. But, um, you know, that's why it would be tricky uh, doing these sorts of analyses.
0: Great. Yeah. Uh, And I think that pretty much brings us to the end of our discussion. I wanna ask you one final question. I know, you know, we started this conversation right at the beginning. And I think the first thing you mentioned is public health is working really, really hard to deal with COVID-19. And I think we really appreciate that. Uh, I certainly do uh, as an individual. I guess my question, my final question to both of you, um, do you have any words of advice or support for your colleagues who are currently managing the public health response in Canada and Ontario? Jeff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, all, all, you know, you summed it up really well. All of our colleagues are working extremely hard, so I think it's important to recognize that this is truly a marathon. This is going to be going on for like months or years, like, and not like weeks for yeah. sure. Um, and so it's important to take care of yourself um, and you know do the things you need to do to you know stay healthy and to keep your you know um, mind sane. Um, because this is going to be going on for quite a while. And so to pace ourselves and to support each other, I think those are the important things that everyone needs to do, especially those working uh, in public health. Mm
0: -hmm. And Vivek?
2: Yeah, I I agree with Jeff. Um, Maybe I'll just uh, have a word for your listeners, because I know many of you are are students in in different disciplines. Consider a career in public health. It's really exciting.
0: (laughs) I can imagine, yeah. You know, this is probably... I mean, imagine. I imagine it's the busiest time if public health has ever been.
2: Yeah, but, but I'll also, you know, maybe I'll just close by saying, mm-hmm. you know, the, public health is about more than infectious diseases.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: if anything, what COVID-19 has shown, you know, the broader social determinants of health, equity, the importance of chronic disease prevention and control, because it's people with chronic diseases that are at greater risk for COVID-19 consequences. And, and you know when there's not something like COVID-19, public health people are still working there really hard in the background and nobody knows about them. Um, and so there are really exciting things that happen in, in public health, even when there isn't a big outbreak or a pandemic like uh, COVID-19.
0: Thanks for tuning in. We hope you found this discussion informative. To kick off season five, the COVID Dakota series hosts sat down for a roundtable reflection on what we learned from the series and the pandemic at large. You can check out episode 80 and the other COVID Decoded streams wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, at Raw Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.